You're listening to a special edition of The Central Cast, a place to connect with and listen in on conversations with prominent and respected thinkers, artists, and culture shapers. It's here we dig beneath the surface as we explore philosophy, arts, comedy, theology, and philanthropy within the framework of progressive faith. If you'd like to contribute to the production and expansion of this podcast, or if you'd like more information about the community which creates it, visit www.centralavenuechurch.org. Yeah, so welcome to the Central Cast, everybody. I'm Aaron Van Voris, the teaching pastor at Central Avenue Church. Thanks for listening in. In 2019, we're going to begin offering special editions to the Central Cast, featuring interviews and conversations with thinkers and writers we find compelling, especially in the areas of religion, politics, and philosophy. So it's only fitting that the first the first of such podcasts is with our friend Tad DeLay. Hi, Tad. Hey. Uh, nice Tad, Tad's spoken at uh, Central before and is someone who researches and writes extensively on all three areas of uh, religion, politics, and philosophy. And I guess I guess you could add psychoanalysis to that too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, do Lacanian critical theory and psychoanalysis, uh, uh, American religions, a whole host of, of areas of, of American religions and political philosophies. That's why we love you. All right. <laughs> so Tad is the author of two books. For those of you who don't know his work, he's, he's the author of two books already, soon to be three, thus, thus the reason for our, our conversation today. But his first two books are exceptional, and they are titled The Cynic and the Fool, colon, The Unconscious in Theology and Politics, and his first book, God is Unconscious, Psychoanalysis and Theology. Tad holds a PhD in religion. Is that actually the uh, the title of your PhD? Just, just yeah, religion? the PhD is I, I hold a PhD in religion with concentrations in continental philosophy and philosophy of religion, and then I have a master's in philosophy and a master's in theology as well. Okay, very cool, very cool. Um, so uh, he currently serves on the faculty of Metropolitan State University of Denver and the Colorado Community Colleges. Is that is that still true? That is. Awesome. Uh, and you teach philosophy and religion there, correct? I do, yeah. Uh, yeah, mix of classes, and it kind of depends semester to semester, but yeah, a mix of mostly philosophy and then a few religious studies here and there. Okay. Well, I'm just going to like – I mean I feel like a lot of the audience is already going to know kind of some of who you are and your backstory, so I just want to jump right into uh, your new book because that, that's Excellent. kind of the, the topic of our conversation today is, yeah, Tad's, sure. is Tad's forthcoming book, Against – what does the white evangelical want? <laughs> I got uh, Tad was nice enough to get me uh, an advanced copy of it, and I read it to prep for our little interview here today. Um, but when is this actually going to be released, Tad? The I don't have a fixed date yet. I actually just recently submitted the manuscript, so my guess would be late summer or perhaps early fall. Oh, okay, late summer, early fall. That's that's yeah. still this year. That works. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to get it out. It's just, and my publisher actually does a great job of getting things out pretty quick. Um, but I don't at the moment have a, a date nailed down yet. I'll have to get that information to you when I know it. Oh, it's all good, man. I think I heard that your book was turned away by one publisher for, for being too strident and polemical. <laughs> is that is that actually true? 
Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I have a, a great connection. It wasn't a, a bad situation at all. It was uh, a connection I have here in Colorado that's working with Rutledge, which is a, a more academic press. And oh, yeah, I know Rutledge. They're interested in doing uh, Lacanian political theory. So the same realm of theory that I do, but they wanted something, I think, a bit drier, a bit a, a bit less uh, grit and <laughs> contempt, maybe it might be the right word, that, okay. uh, that kind of oozes out of my work. Um, so I, I, I fully expect to publish a, a dissertation or something like that with them in the future. But um, yeah, but that, that was not uh, the the right fit at this time yet. Yeah, I feel you. Um, but I that, but I took that as a compliment. I, I want my work to have some some blood in it, right? I, yeah. I want it to 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 speak to very concrete concerning matters that are happening in the world right now. How dare you, sir? <laughs> right. So you talk about this idea of chosenness in your book as and chosenness as being the common denominator or being the idea that joins together the religious and political aspirations of these white evangelicals. What do you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by chosenness? Yeah, well, this was, you know, the process of writing a book is you kind of begin with some general ideas and then you kind of nail those down as you do the research and you kind of have an outline. And then sometimes it's not until you get kind of close to having like the draft of the first draft done that it really becomes clear what you're trying to talk about and you can rework ideas. So I think the concept of chosenness and also the concept of fantasy, the way that I'm using it, were both, uh, that that was a, that was a true case for, for both of those. Uh, But what I wanted to kind of, what I kept coming across was that the white evangelical thinks of themselves as a chosen people, right? And I kind of see this as chosenness itself is not a bad thing, right? I actually think that the chosenness is is a double theft of its its, its anti black racism and also its anti uh, Semitic uh, supersessionism. Right. Okay. Right. So so when the Jewish people call themselves chosen, I don't find anything problematic about that, right? But it's a distinctly different meaning than when a white evangelical thinks of themselves as having access to what God truly desires, right? Like if you ask a white evangelical, when did white evangelicalism become a thing? First off, they would say, it's really bizarre that you're trying to make a racial issue out of this, right? right. Uh, but then also, once they got past that, they would say, well, there have always been people who believe what I believe, right? And, and that kind of goes to this notion that they're recovering something that has been there all along in the tradition, that there's nothing genuinely new, uh, that perhaps the the format is different, perhaps the megachurch is a, is a novelty, but all the, the doctrine is kind of there. So what I want to kind of say uh, underneath that is that there's there's almost it's a, it seems like the white evangelicalism that exists today is basically this thing that has one core doctrine. There's a lot of window dressing, but if you know right now there's there's window dressing of like big issues of like what you believe about divine inspiration of scripture or hell is one that kind of recurs in a trope every few years. Uh, What we think about non-heteronormative sexual expressions, these types of things become recurring tropes that uh, that they kind of pretend are super important doctrinally. But really at the end of the day, chosenness is the only doctrine right yeah. that, that's the, the it's whatever whatever can kind of fit in the rubric of chosenness is what they want to hold on to right so that's why something like hell which means that there are people who are chosen people who are not that that's why that matters right 
the idea that you could have pluralism or other you know other expressions of religion or even other expressions of Christianity having the same access to God also infringes on chosenness right the idea that there could be something as such as like privilege in in uh, racial groups right that kind of uh, you know runs against the idea that that there's there's no defining characteristics except identity which is indexed to god's favor on a particular group right so i do see it very much as something that that christianity is perhaps uniquely designed to to pick up on this this concept of chosenness that kind of becomes a type of narcissism expressed politically but also it's a devil theft we we need to i think um i'll say this one more time and then let you jump in here but i, I think it's very important that we keep in mind that what white evangelicalism is holding on to what the concept of chosenness is at its base, uh, a theft of its uh, supersessionism and its anti-blackness. Uh-huh. So you seem to say that all of these things, you brought up um, racism just right there. You seem to say that all of these things, and I'm going to list them off, are rooted in racism. Biblical literalism, this chosenness you just talked about, anti-science bias, this anti-expertise, uh, anti-seminary bias within a lot of conservative churches, the mm-hmm. home, the homeschooling movement. Is, is all that rooted in racism for you? And, and if so, how so? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big question, I guess. But. My, my tendency is to say that it all has some racist connection to it. So, so the, the easy way to talk about this is with the uh, private and homeschooling movements, right? That's a very easy way to see how when between 1950 and 1965, in, in the time we're going through not just desegregation but also civil rights and voting rights, we see an explosion of 120 percent in the South in, uh, in, in private school enrollment, wow, right? Yeah. Whereas the South had traditionally lagged behind in the North if they had private schooling at all, right? So, yeah. so to me, talking about private schooling and the whole history of the school, the even public schools uh, leading up to that after the Civil War is a very easy thing to talk about. Okay, this is explicitly about racism. And then that drive to keep white kids and black kids separate in the apparatus of the private and then later the home school becomes the ground where we get political activism that gives rise to the religious right under the cover of abortion. And it's also where we get these kinds of trends of anti-evolution and various other anti-science thinkings. So when we talk about anti-evolutionary um, craziness in evangelical world, that actually really deeply is rooted in anti-blackness, right? Mm. And then other things like why is it exactly is it that uh, sexuality, evangelicalism's um, aggressive stance against sexuality, how does that work in terms of anti-blackness? Well, the, there we can also see lots of tropes and like various racial um, historical trends that that lead to like the fear of like the white woman who needs to be protected from everything else in society and stuff like that. And so there's a mix of patriarchy and anti-blackness. But there, I think I, I start to have blind spots where I can't quite see all of the ways that this plays out, but I can definitely see some of them. Right. And- so I think that we could talk about the apocalypticism, um, the, you know, you know, we could even talk about 
what happens when we deny that the future exists and we just let global warming to go go rampant? Um, that's going to affect Africa in ways that it's not going to affect right. um, uh, white people in America uh, in, in 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 insane ways, right? Uh, when we make large swaths of the of the world uninhabitable and we just let people die, that's that's also rooted in a type of anti-blackness. You know, Ted, I think a lot of people are going to hear what you're saying and wonder, you know. Where is he seeing all this? And I think it's so important for people to understand. I think you're describing, well, from a psychoanalytic perspective, the unconscious workings of this, you know, these this theory and praxis, uh, you know, what's taking place today in white white evangelicalism and what has taken place in white evangelicalism. Uh, it's really you're talking about these unconscious forces that people aren't even aware of that are actually at work in their lives and in the structures they participate in. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Now, and that's the important thing to think of in in terms of racism is that it does not matter whether or not you feel the bias. That right. that, is, that is a completely separate issue from whether or not uh, groups are being treated in measurably different ways. Because time, because a lot right? of people are going to hear it, what you're it, saying. It, a lot of people are going to hear what you're saying and read your book and be like, "I'm not racist. I don't feel racist or homophobic or sexist." What is he talking about? Right, and to even say that, even to personalize it, is is already on the wrong track, right? Yeah, yeah. If I say I'm not racist, what I'm saying is I am not. I am refusing to think of race in terms of uh, systemic or unconscious dynamics, right? I'm trying to personalize it and think: Do I specifically say or think uh, racist things? Right. right? Uh, that's that, that's problematic if I am doing those things. But even more problematic is that my my whole world. Uh, is is benefited by my being white, right? There, there's there's situations that I encounter every day or advantages that I take advantage of every day that simply would not be afforded to me if I was born under different circumstances. So yeah, so when I'm talking about racism, I don't want to say that that white evangelicals are always you know waking up in the morning and thinking like I hate everyone that is not the same skin color as me. Not at all. Um, I'm saying that when I went to school when I was a kid, so I was I was raised in. Uh, in white evangelicalism and went to private Christian schools, it did not occur to me that it was weird that I had zero black classmates, right? <laughs> um, so, so it, it just didn't occur to me, right? It didn't occur to me that it was weird that my textbooks told me that some, you know, slave owners were bad, but most of them were really good, right? right? right. It didn't occur to me that any of this had any larger context, right? That's fine that a kid doesn't think that, right? I mean, that would be kind of weird if I was analyzing those systemic issues at that age, uh, but, it, but it's bizarre to me that you could have entire cohorts of adults that are putting their kids in those situations and also don't see any problem with that. That's that's the troubling thing. Yeah, and, and that's that's really the area where I see a lot of disconnect. I mean, as a pastor, trying to help people understand or practice critical self-reflection and understand kind of like their hidden motives and uh, intentions that they are not even totally consciously aware of or not consciously aware of, that is so hard to do. And it's and it's certainly a bridge I had to cross in my deconstruction and conversion out of evangelicalism is to really come to terms with I'm full of doubts. <laughs> I don't really believe this stuff, and I haven't acknowledged that ever, you know. <laughs> um, but when I did, it was it's liberating. But it's it's so hard uh, in my experience to get people to, in essence, open their eyes, you know. Um, but that's but that's the work we're in, right, man? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and let me let me follow up with two more things that I think are important to say. When when I'm talking about white evangelicalism. 
uh, a lot of people will probably think, well, they don't, uh, black evangelicals or Latino evangelicals also have these same beliefs. And they, and they do appeal to certain same beliefs. Uh, but uh, you really just have to look at any one of any survey ever done on different beliefs by religious and racial breakdown. And you can immediately see that white evangelicals are a completely, they act as a completely different faith, right? In, in terms of, of what they believe, what they subscribe to, how they vote, what their income levels are. It's a completely different um, a, a group of people than a, a black evangelical or a Latino evangelical, anything else that, that would be represented in the data, right? So, so we do have that. And then I also want to say, because this is probably going to be important for many of the other things that we'll talk about here, is that I'm, I'm trying to say that white evangelicalism is a new faith, it, not maybe not a new religion, but it's a new sect. It's when did definitely it start? More than a than a new denomination. What was that? When did it start? Well, that would be kind of hard to put a precise date on, but I think of it as starting kind of. Uh, the the roots of it kind of go back to civil war, and then they start kind of budding after the collapse of the fundamentalist movement. But what we call white evangelicalism today is really something that's not really more than 50, 60 years old, right? I, I think that we have to be starting to think of it in terms of this is a this is a distinct type of Christianity that emerges in the mid to late 20th century it would not you would not have had a religious right for example this this idea that white evangelicals are Republican voters and they care a lot about gay marriage and abortion and things like that you would not have had that without uh, the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and then the loss of tax exemptions for religious schools, right? Yeah. So, so this kind of highly conservative, highly politicized evangelicalism, while it has roots and uh, various other examples earlier in the 20th century as a mass movement where white evangelicals tend to be highly, highly partisan to the Republican Party and a few select issues. This is only something that we can talk about after the desegregation of schools. Yeah, and it's, so, yeah. And it's really become pertinent in the era of Trump. In other words, it's, it's come to a head where it's like you can't, you can't not talk about it anymore, right? Right. Well, and this is what chosenness as a doctrine gives you, right? Uh, the alt-right and the evangelical religious right is the same doctrine, right? It's, it's that I am chosen and I don't have to second-guess myself and I can be a strong man if I want because I know I'm right. Right. And, and God has pre-authorized everything that I desire, right? Because my desires are in, in alignment with God's desires. So, so that's the fantasy and this chosenness is sort of why, you know, as millennials – Disaffiliate from religion. What we're also seeing is is a lot of millennials are are we're not just this bastion of progressiveness no. uh, uh, uniformly, right? A no. lot of people that I knew that grew up in evangelicalism in my millennial cohort have uh, defected to the alt right at this point, right? And in a sense, they haven't they they've lost the religion and gone alt right neo Nazi, but they haven't really changed religions that much, right? They they've just discarded the Jesus stuff, right? But kept the chosenness, the salvation, the whiteness. Uh, the certainty, all of that stuff. The underlying, the underlying ideology is still in place. Exactly. Yeah. That that actually segues into my next question. Um, you say, I'm going to quote you here: uh, "The reactionary liberals' fantasy 
and kind of the neoliberal fantasy as I read it, uh, and we're talking about neoliberals, I feel like, at this moment, the, the reactionary neoliberals fantasy supposes conservatives are dupes in need of education. This deep miscalculation on the part of the liberal misses the point, and liberalism will not save us. What do you – I guess what will save us, Tad DeLay? <laughs> Well, I'm not sure that we can be saved, and I think we need to be kind of uh, honest about that. And my hope is that we can be saved. My hope is that critical thinking and education can allow us to be saved. But essentially, I think that liberals think that we're in a battle of information, that we can just be educated out pure and simple, right? So I think that education is deeply important. I am an educator myself. I would not write books or teach courses if I didn't think that education had the power to liberate the minds, right? But at the same time, if my students come into the classroom desiring to keep believing the same things that they do, and I am not able to route that desire and, and sort of trigger a, a desire to awaken them, then they will come out of that course uh, just as bad or even more aggressive in the, the beliefs that they came into the class with, right? So I think that we kind of need to think not in terms of battling information sets, but in terms of battling desire, right? And changing the information access that people are uh, are open to, that can realign desire, right? That okay. can and does, right? So for example, when if I'm talking to my psychotherapist, we're having an exchange of information through words that can realign my desire, right? But if my therapist, if she, if she is just trying to argue me into a better way of thinking about myself, perhaps, you know, some, you know, perhaps she thinks that I, that I have some unhealthy habits or ideas and I need to simply have those realigned through fact checking, yeah. <laughs> um, that that's not going to work, right? So, so we need to think not in terms of being in a battle of information, but in a battle of desire and information is an adjunct of that desire and can be a helpful adjunct of reorientation. But at the end of the day, people are going to do what they desire to do, whether they realize that's what they desire or not. Yeah. And so liberalism simply, you know, liberalism kind of, this is one of Lacan's lessons that I kind of put at the very end as well. Lacan had this kind of thing where he said, you know, if you think that you're trying to rescue a duped person, you haven't caught that you're actually already duped by by even entering into that situation. You you haven't realized that they are doing or saying or thinking what they think because they desire to. You think it's an information issue for them. It's a desire issue. So you've already lost. You're already more of an idiot than uh, the person that doesn't believe in global warming or something like right. that, right? Yeah. So 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 that's that's kind of I think we need to take that very seriously in the same way that any good teacher or or minister is is taking that right. Um, your your job is not to dispense information, but to think about the the flows of desire that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, and it's it um, it's certainly something that I've kind of looked back on my life and thought I when I, when I trace my my deconstruction or, or my exit out of evangelicalism and why I changed when I did, desire had everything to do with it. It was it I changed most when I was able to change without serious repercussions to my career or kind of social 
uh, network, right? So in other words, mm-hmm. when I when I knew that um, you know affirming same sex relationships probably wouldn't co- cost me my job, it suddenly became possible for me to change my theology there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And and and, it, and or it's, or it's and it wasn't all about that because I had already become kind of affirming privately, but for me to actually own it and be public about it and kind of explore it more, I had to have this change in my desire. In other words, I had to desire kind of um, – I, I had to be comfortable with making the change because if, if I desired to keep my job more than you know to be intellectually honest or to be ethical, then I probably would have chosen to keep my job and you know uh, remain kind of uh, bigoted in that area. I just – I see it all the time in other people and I see it in myself and um, it's just a really good point, man. Um, but that doesn't make it easy to change, right? <laughs> it's still like uh, – uh, extremely difficult to help people transition through their desires like that. Um, let me uh, let, let me uh, kind of uh, change topics here. You point out that 9/11 and the U.S. response to it killed secular optimism. Uh, I assume by that you mean that 9/11 and our response with the uh, war on terror uh, killed the secular West's hope for a utopian post-religious world. Uh, do you ever, first of all, is that true? Is that is that kind of what you mean by killing secular optimism? That 9/11? Something like that. So there's this old trope that in the sort of the late uh, well, 80s and 90s, there was this idea that uh, it was called the secularization hypothesis. And the idea was that as society progresses and becomes more globalized and interconnected with markets, that we will eventually lose gods. Right, and I get this also. This is not necessarily wrong, but I also encounter this when people kind of say, with my own work, you know, I think that actually white evangelicalism will just disappear in the coming years ahead. Right? There's there's a new article on that all the time that just says that since people are identifying less with white evangelicalism, that that means that they're actually genuinely leaving it. Right? Yeah. Um, so there's this older trope of that kind of same thinking in the in the 70s and the, or the 80s, 90s. Uh, the secularization hypothesis said that as societies interconnect more, we will eventually get rid of our gods. And that started coming under criticism uh, in, by the, the late 20th century, and then 9-11 was kind of like a, a – a shock to that idea, right? That actually uh, fundamentalism is alive and well in the world, right? And it's it's not it's fundamentalism in Islam, uh, in Christianity, in lots of different faiths in the West and even in the East. There are all sorts of fundamentalisms, and perhaps actually a globalizing and modernizing world breeds these uh, vacuums where people need something traditional to hold on to, and so they turn to the most aggressive or violent or repressive type of religion that they can because it gives them some sense of familiarity, right? So so I want to use that 9-11 example to kind of say it's multiple things that are going on here, right? One, it's a symbol of the impotence of the secularization hypothesis. Also, it's a symbol, it's an early symbol of how evangelicalism is a far, far more dangerous faith than uh, Islam could ever be, right? Uh, evangelicalism kills far, far more people than any version of Islam will ever be able to kill, right? Uh, we just simply have so much power, right? There's there's a stranglehold on the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is a very good vehicle for killing lots and lots of people, and we have the nukes, and we have the ability to change the climate, and we are, we are killing at a pace that is just unimaginable, right? So 9-11 was a moment where we lost 3,000 people, and that was horrible and tragic, and in response, we killed more than a million people, right? That's a, that's a vast difference. So, so I want to use those kinds of examples to kind of say 
There are lots of different things going on um, in terms of how we think about the erosion of religion and the aggression of religion in response to that erosion. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's really interesting. You know, as a pastor, I'm I'm asked once in a while, uh, as an ext- you know extremely progressive pastor, <laughs> um, and one practicing radical theology, um, or at least attempting to. Um, I'm I'm asked where do I see the church going, the American church, and you know the more I think about it, the more I converse with you know guys like you and and um, read, and you know the, the less I'm sure what's going to happen. If anything, you know the rise of uh, white nationalism and kind of the resurgence of fundamentalism has left me kind of dumbfounded and and not really because I I thought and I guess I still think Tad and I, maybe you can react to this. I still think the Amer- um, the American church scene is going to continue to become more like Western Europe as far as being godless and the church will continue to decline, but I don't know how much. And I, and frankly, you know, with, with the resurgence of, uh, you know, again, this kind of fascist white nationalism wrapped around evangelical ideology, you know, I just, I, I feel like all bets are off in some ways, but I, mm-hmm. I tend to lean towards the, you know, kind of the arc of history, as you put it, when, cultures interact, uh, they tend to become more secular and gods die off or gods that are less uh, violent and oppressive kind of uh, resurrect or come to life, um, whatever that means. But uh, what do you think? Do you, do you see the American church following Western Europe or do you see something uh, something else coming, coming to uh, manifest? Um, I don't know that I feel like I have a very clear view of what happens 30 years from now, for right. example. Yeah. Um, so – we're, I mean, we're going to demographically, we're going to be in a, a very different world. So there's the chance that uh, the, uh, you know, the white evangelicals decide to, um, you know, kind of dissipate and join in with other groups and become more intersectional. Or there's a very good chance that the increase of demographics, uh, demographic change, and then the uh, the massive influx of immigration that we'll start to experience once the water wars start in 20 years, uh, that, that, that you know, you know, and drought becomes more widespread. There's a chance that the influx of, of refugees and the demographic changes will make white evangelicals even more conservative, right? So I I'm kind of hedging my bets here by just saying I, I honestly think that it would be irresponsible of me to to try to make a projection. On that, what what I yeah. do want to say though is that there's this weird genre uh, of journalism. I allude to this in the book that that it sort of recycles itself every year or two now. That is trying to talk about how millennials are less, you know, strident, less conservative than their forefathers, and so you know somehow white evangelicalism is going to become more moderate. I don't think that that's true at all. Mm-hmm. I, I think what happens is you this faith dissipates and it becomes it sort of in it, yeah, evolves into something else completely, but it basically white evangelicalism as it exists today uh, will no longer exist or um, uh, 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 it, or it will you know still exist. Uh, in smaller and smaller uh, pockets, but it will be just as uh, vituperative, just as aggressive as it is today. I, I find this whole notion that the next generation of evangelicals are simply going to moderate and hold all the same theology, which is all rooted in anti-blackness, but the idea that all of that can be held on to just in a more moderate way seems absurd to me. So anytime I see uh, you know, journalists talking about like the 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 latest views of of older and younger millennials on their evangelicalism and how they're less anti-gay than their parents, but they're still evangelicals. I'm I'm thinking, no, this is this is not the the evangelical that moderates. This is the evangelical who is about to leave their faith or 
basically have a whole different concept of faith that would be completely foreign to what they believed just a few years ago. Does that make sense? I think so. It sounds like what you're saying is that the beliefs might change in this next generation, or the, the beliefs, the 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 superficial, uh, metaphysical, theological beliefs of the next generation of white evangelicals or, or, or American Christianity might might alter and might become more mystical and open or new agey, but the underlying ideology is not going to change. Yeah, sure. Um, yes, I mean something like that, right? The the whole idea, for example, that the religious right is no longer attractive uh, to to the younger generation. I try telling that to the, the massive uh, the, the numbers of millennials who are, are fully on board with with Trumpism. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Th- I mean, th- there is literally nothing more brutal that we could realistically expect to see. Right? Like putting children in cages, collapsing the climate, uh, passing a tax law designed, that you know projected to kill fifteen thousand Americans per year. These types of things that are just gratuitously cruel. Yeah. The the idea that the religious right of old uh, is kind of dead and gone and now we're all kind of moderating and becoming more open to reproductive rights and less patriarchal and less heterosexist um, seems to be completely contradicted by the data so far as I can see. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I see uh, you know, the, the, the influx or the growth of the nuns and duns, the, the non-affiliated uh, continuing. I think you're, we're still we're going to continue to see an exit from uh, mainline denominations and even from more conservative non-denom, you know, independent community churches. And I, I think we're going to continue to see a decline, but I, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be as much as kind of uh, the secular optimists have in mind or the atheists or whatever. Uh, I, I, I think, and I also think that nationalism and this kind of white evangelical, you know, ideology that's wrapped up in racism is really not, really not going anywhere. I, I, so it's not like, I guess I guess my point is is that it's not that the church is going to die and all of the white nationalism is going to go with it. The church is not going to die. Uh, it's going to continue to decline. But this this problem that we're seeing today is going to remain, and it perhaps perhaps might get worse. Uh, frankly, um, yeah, I, it's it's interesting um, and it's a little confusing. Let me ask you this. Um, can you talk more about the – in the book, you talk about this relationship between sadism and masochism and its relevance to the religious and the political. Can you talk more about that intersection between you know, self-harm and harm of the other, sadism and masochism and how it plays out? Yeah, this is a, a fairly new idea for me. Theoretically, it's, I'm still indebted to Lacan on this, uh, specifically his 10th seminar on anxiety. But the way that he talks about sadomasochistic sexuality is that what the sadism is trying to do is not provoke pain in the other so much as to provoke anxiety, and it's that anxiety that produces a type of sexual pleasure, right? So, so we can kind of so if you want to think of how this you see this every single day to kind of bring it into into the realm of of the commonplace when you see somebody online saying something to somebody else and then like making a joke like, "Oh, are you triggered?" Right. Right. You know, it's sort of poking at somebody else. That's sadism, according to psychoanalysis, right? That's you're not trying to hurt the other person so much as you're trying to provoke anxiety. You're trying to get a response out of them. There's right? some kind of pleasure or joy that's derived from that, yeah. Right, yeah, and it's it's almost like a like a uh, like it's a type of sexual pleasure, right? To, I mean, if you want to kind of think of like desire and pleasure being kind of all you know connected across multiple different facets of our life, but right, there is like this libidinal uh, uh, aspect to the desire to 
it's always a man trying to uh, you know provoke somebody who he considers less manly or who is a woman or something like that right uh, it's always a man that's doing this and it's it's they're trying to provoke a certain amount of anxiety in the other now for Lacan uh, the masochism is actually primary so I think we tend to think that people hurt other people and even if it costs like if it costs me a little bit of pain to hurt somebody else maybe i have judged that hurting somebody else uh the the sadism is worth a little bit of masochism worth a little bit of self-harm right so the most famous example of this is like the what's the matter with kansas phenomenon that happened a few years ago right this idea that uh, that uh, Republicans are sort of uh, Republicans in the South, you know, the, the, the area of the world that I come from, that we're all just kind of dupes and that we're willing to, um, I mean, I myself am not a Republican, but, you know, the, the world that I come out of. Wait, what? Uh, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> that we're dupes and that we are willing to hurt other people, um, it, well, that we're willing to take on a certain amount of pain because it helps us feel stronger, right? Um, that we're able, like I'm perhaps willing to uh, have the minimum wage taken down a notch every year and willing to see my taxes go up and willing to see taxes on the wealthy go down and generally have a more awful economic state of life because at the end of, so that's the masochism, uh, because I get to still as a white male feel more powerful than uh, 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 you know African Americans or women or something like that. right? So that was kind of the way that political discourse operated for a while that uh, that people accept a certain amount of masochism because they get to be sadistic and I actually want to say that I think I mean this is this is a little more of a stretch theoretically but I think I am willing to make the argument that people enjoy masochism primarily and then sadism is an adjunct of that masochism Mm. Uh, one example I give is the uh, that uh, this idea that people enjoy self harm and then hurt others as a way to justify the self harm. One I, example I give of this is uh, you know a, a relative of mine who uh, is uh, on his healthcare is dependent on government, and he was really excited about the healthcare proposal that he kind of knew would kick him off healthcare, right? And he it wasn't that he was duped completely. He was I mean he was not terribly intellectually precocious, but he kind of understood that this uh healthcare policy that was being pushed through would nix his own Medicare. Right. So he, he understood that he and, and by the way, he had a terminal disease at the same time. Right. Jeez. So he kind of understood that this decision could kill him. But it was sort of I think he kind of decided it was worth it to have a chance to take, you know, take a shot at Obama's uh, signature achievement or something like that. Right. So there's two ways that we can kind of analyze uh, situations like this. We can either say that they're. Uh, enjoying hurting someone else so much that they're willing to take on pain, or we can say that actually people are – we spend vast amounts of our life destroying ourselves all the time, right? That's what an addiction is. That's what any kind of self-destructive behavior or like the same relationship fights or issues that we have that we keep having over and over. Uh, we spend lots of our lives being self-destructive constantly, and my wager is that maybe we need to think of politically – and religiously, we need to think of what it means when people actually enjoy self-harm primarily and the sadism against other people is actually just a way to justify the self-harm, right? Um, so I think that that's a, a terribly important thing to 
uh, think through, especially so in terms of sexuality, for example, um, who is the most likely to be, uh, you know, take on anti-gay politics and be really excited about that? It's people who are really repressed in their own sexuality and are kind of angry that other people aren't as well, right? But but instead of being less repressed in their own sexuality, they want to uh, keep that repression because they kind of feel smug, like haha, I'm better than everyone else because I'm repressed. <laughs> And, and, and by the way, as an adjunct of that, I'll vote to uh, deprive other people of rights or deprive people of access to uh, uh, contraception or something like that, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And uh, you know, it's, I think everybody listening knows somebody in their life who you know, is a complete hypocrite and uh, some kind of a Christian or, or fundamentalist who you know, is adamantly against same-sex relationships and speaks against it all the time and kind of takes, takes it to like an extreme. And then you come to find out years later that they're gay or they're, they're engaging in you know, uh, prostitution or you know, they're, they're, in other words, they're paying prostitutes or they're, they have some huge, you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you call it, like moral failing in their own life. What, if, that's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. It's this, this, it's suddenly right. you come to find out that their, their hatred of the other was really a hatred of the self. Right. I mean, and, it, and it's not just a matter of, of, uh, people who are closeted themselves and can't admit it. This happens just in, in the boring heterosexual world as well, right? Uh, there, the number of people who believe that sex outside of marriage is, uh, always or sometimes wrong is still pretty prevalent. I can't remember what the exact number is, but I think it's somewhere between uh, a third and half. Um, the number of people who have sex outside of marriage by age 45 is somewhere between 97 and 100 percent, right? And that's only <laughs> if we design it as vaginal intercourse, right? So, so actually the number of people who have um, intercourse by age 45 is actually higher than the number of people who are even heterosexual, right? So, so basically, and that's not even including uh, like oral sex or anything like that, right? So um, the number of people who break these taboos, it, it, it's not just people who have particular types of repression. It is basically anybody who presents themselves as not breaking these taboos. Uh, they're all, they're all hypocrites, right? The, statistically, they, the, the, the person who is not a hypocrite doesn't exist, right? right. I mean, like, sure, uh, you know, you can, you can find actual cases of somebody who is perfectly repressed probably. Um, but, but basically everybody has sex outside of marriage. Um, everybody has all sorts of, you know, perversions or whatever disgusting things that, that everyone shares, right? Um, but, but we have, but we find some sort of perverse pleasure in pretending like we don't. And that's bizarre. And we need to think about like, what are the, uh, political ramifications of that of people who actually enjoy their own repression and and unhappiness. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't liberate that, right? The the moment that you say here's your freedom, someone takes that offer of freedom as a threat, right? So liberation actually becomes something to work against in that rubric. Man, we are we are some sick puppies, us human beings. <laughs> Um, let me uh, let me let me finish with this with this question, and uh, we'll we see uh, see where this goes. Um, I, I think some will read your book and ask, and and you make I think a, a case in your book about how this kind of dehumanizing rhetoric from the right against um, specifically immigrants, refugees, um, anybody designated as the other, this dehumanizing rhetoric is is kind of the fuel of fascism on the right. Let, let me ask you first of all, you, do you agree with that? I think I, I read that in your book. Um, that you you make that argument 
Yeah, sure. As far as that goes, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like someone's going to read – a lot of people might read your book and say if hate-filled dehumanizing rhetoric is the fuel of fascism on the right, then how do we avoid these same pitfalls on the left? You know, How do we avoid dehumanizing white evangelicals so that we're not engaging in or, or encouraging the, the same kind of violence they are? Mm. Um, are, you, are you at all concerned about this? Uh, I'm not, and, and I know that I probably actually will lose people on that, but I think that we need to take seriously the idea that contempt and hate are good political weapons to take seriously, right? And our problem is that uh, hate gets misdirected onto minorities when it should go against the, the wealthy who are destroying the world mm. and uh, don't even care about whether or not their great-grandchildren have breathable air uh, or, or die of heat stroke, right? These are, these are vulgar, awful people, and they are very good at redirecting uh, the lower middle classes hate towards minorities, right? So, so that's one type of hate. But actually, having contempt for those types of people, and uh, you know, at the upper echelons that are that are working against our interests, I think that's a good thing. I think, I, I, like, I am angry right now that uh, I don't know if my kids will be able to have kids. Right? I mean, like, if they will have to make the decision, like, do I want to, uh, you know, have kids in a world that that is actually collapsing and borders are being broken? And, and the climate is going out of control, right? right? Um, and there's less and less area in the world where people can live um, with, without uh, uh, water stress or heat stress or food stress, right? Um, I, I feel contempt about that, right? Because we know it's happening. Uh, we know that climate change is already killing a quarter million people per year, and it's going to go up to Holocaust speeds before long, uh, and it's going to exceed that, right? We know that the last time there was this much carbon in the atmosphere, the oceans were at least 50 feet taller, right? So we're not talking about losing New York or uh, parts of like New Orleans. We're talking about like losing the entire state of Florida, right? Like we're talking about like there's massive things going on in the world that we actually I think we do need to have some contempt for. I, I don't need to feel contempt for all of my family that voted for Donald Trump, right? Um, I can feel contempt for their hatred uh, of, uh, of uh, immigrants that led them to be able to support that, right? Like that's, that's a good thing to have contempt for right. and to not take seriously. But I don't need to hate them. I need to hate the, the powers and principalities of this dark world at the very top that are benefiting from all that and have such contempt for the rest of us that they literally don't even care that their own grandchildren will suffer along with the rest of us, right? So that, that's how we kind of need to think about contempt and hate and aggression today, I think. I, th I think it's this, this whole idea that we need to just be more civil, I think, is extremely dangerous, uh, that, that we need to just pretend like people aren't dying left and right and that the world is fine and basically we're going to solve all of our problems without any sort of uh, awakening. I think that's terribly dangerous. Yeah, appeals to civility are usually uh, kind of, you know, the, the rhetoric of, of the right and the privileged, right? Those, mm -hmm. the, those who don't you know, really understand or appreciate what's really at stake and what's really happening in the world and how horrific it is. Uh, those, those appeals to civility uh, are definitely misplaced and, and frankly can be kind of um, repressive and oppressive, right? And, and geared towards silencing people and, and stopping any kind of meaningful pushback or protest. Uh, right. Ab ab absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, this is a lesson of like, you know, the, the classic Desmond Tutu quote or Martin Luther King said a similar thing. Howard Zinn, lots of different activists have said 
said something to the effect of, you know, when you're when an uh, elephant is stepping on a mouse, the mouse doesn't appreciate your neutrality, right? Right. Um, so, so we, you know, my great grandkids, if I'm very civil and don't say anything about climate change or war or religion or violence, if my great grandkids can like look back at me and say like, my God, like you knew that all of these things were happening and you were civil about it yeah. instead of like trying to stop it, like. Thanks a lot. You like you. You're an awful human being, right? Um, so, so I, I want to kind of live with it with an eye towards the future because if we have any hope whatsoever, it's going to require massive changes, and, and massive changes require honest conversation, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, listen. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me and uh, coming on the podcast here. Um, great book. Again, the 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 name of the book is Against. What does the white evangelical want? Who's publishing this, by the way? This will be with Cascade, and again, hopefully sometime over the summer. But I'll get details to you when it comes out. And, and Cascade or is when an imprint. When I get a date. Okay, cool. And Cascade is an imprint of Wiffenstock. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Are, yes, yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, listen, Ted, thanks again, and I uh, look forward to uh, actually getting the book in my in my hands. Uh, I, you sent me a PDF uh, copy of it, so I'm, I'm definitely uh, <laughs> looking forward right. to having it. I still am one of those people that love to actually have a physical book oh, in my yeah. hand. Um, all right, man, thanks. And, well, thanks uh, for having me on, yeah.